Hello. Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious I'm about. Curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships can evolve with people evolve as they grow and change? What happens when you're awkward, shy, black boy, you know, mm-hmm. with a average size penis <laughs> right? okay. and you mm-hmm. and you maybe are asexual mm-hmm. right, right. What, yeah, if, what, sure. what happens then right mm-hmm. what do people think of you then and and what do your relationships look like and how does desire towards you or lack of desire towards you how does mm-hmm. how does what does that look like welcome to the curious fox podcast for those challenging the status quo in love sex and relationships my name is effie blue and I'm Jacqueline Mislaw, and today we're talking about consent and how race is an important element that's missing from our sex and consent education. Consent is a huge topic with multiple dimensions. However, current conversations don't always take into consideration the power dynamics that exist due to race. In the U.S. and Canada, this is most evident within the Black community. We can't ignore the impact of slavery when we're exploring this topic. Given that not too long ago, black bodies were owned and black folks were not asked for their consent for anything. Though slavery is no longer overtly sanctioned in North America, the echoes of this mindset are very much present in our everyday interactions. Nowhere is this more salient than when we are navigating consent. Sex education in North America ranges from non-existent to outdated and harm reduction focused. So we went on a quest to find a nuanced approach to consent in the context of sex education. Our research brought us to Lydia Collins. I'm Lydia Collins. I'm a sexual health educator and author, and I'm committed to helping folks make informed decisions about their bodies. In addition to writing essays, articles, and poetry, Lydia facilitates workshops to universities, nonprofits, and high schools across North America on various topics, including anti-Blackness, sexual health education, cultural competency, and radical self-care. We wanted to start with the most obvious question. What exactly is consent? When I was part of a group in in university, we kind of came up with a consent education curriculum and we made a definition of consent. And I always really loved that one. And the main focus of it was that consent is the uninfluenced desire to engage in specific acts rather than agreeing, compromising or complying with the request. Would you mind just saying that again slowly and we can yes, like engage with every God. part of that because it's clearly being really thought through <laughs> and there's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot there that Definitely. I love. It, yeah. it, it was very thought through. So we described it as the uninfluenced desire to engage in specific acts rather than agreeing, compromising, or complying with the request. Great. So it's uninfluenced, yes. right? That's the first one. So that's that goes along the lines with... Uh, informed consent, like you're not mm-hmm. coerced. It's like whatever that feels good to you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, uninfluenced desire. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. So that's mm-hmm. really like looking into what's calling you, what what you actually want to do, what you want to pursue out there. Yeah. Right. So uninfluenced consent, uh, uninfluenced desire to engage in specific acts rather than okay. agreeing or compromising. Mm-hmm. Rather than yeah. Agreeing, yeah. Love that. I think it's really, which is really key. Yeah. You know, and I, as you say that, I think it immediately, I immediately felt challenged in that I'm Mm -hmm. like, oh, that is what it is. But that's, (laughs) and then I made like a flash of all of the times, including, you know, this week, times where I have done things that I would, I would not have chosen on my own because of a myriad of of different factors, socialization being one of them. And so I love that you started from that place. And and Effie, I I appreciate you pointing out the desire piece too, because Mm -hmm. that's also a piece of like, what do I actually want? Yeah. Right. Right. Whereas what I should be doing, right. What's the right thing to do. Right. Then what do I want to do? I love that. And I like that. It's I mean, everything is specific acts. So you're not talking about general, general. Okay. Right. You are saying this, you're being very intentional about the thing that you're giving consent about. Right. It's like every 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 part of that definition is just like beautiful. It speaks to something that is crucial. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Yeah. How did you all come to that? 
So we worked together. We were a group of students, graduate and, and undergrad students, under the supervision of Dr. Margot Francis, with some support from other women's and gender studies and social sociology professors. And essentially, we created a group on campus called Decolonize and Deconstruct. And it was essentially, the point of it was that we were all noticing that the consent education we were seeing on campus was not reflecting our realities. And our realities were the fact that race and racism were key components of our relationships to consent um, and how we experienced it, and especially in regards to specifically sexual violence. And so, yeah, so we came together and we kind of created a curriculum that kind of came had a more decolonial perspective of um, consent education. And we wanted to provide that to lecture halls on on the campus. And we did that. And part of that process was making our definition of consent. That's kind of where we started from was what does consent look like for us? We were seeing a lot of very surface level, you know, consent for pizza, consent is sexy, uh, you know, that on campus kind of stuff. And we're like, you know, consent isn't always sexy. Consent is mandatory, right? Like not every mm-hmm. situation is going to be comfortable and sexy and, and look pretty, um, but it's still necessary. And so, yeah, that's that's where we came up with that definition was mm-hmm. kind of putting all of our minds together, a bunch of brilliant Black and Indigenous and other people of color, mostly women and femmes, actually all women and femmes. And yeah, thinking about what consent meant to us and then finding a way to pretty that up. And that's yeah. where that definition came from. I love that. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about what is the distinction between what we learn about consent within sexual education and what was missing from that education? Mm. I think the main part that was missing, at least for me, was, again, going back to that, those surface level campaigns were often leaving out race and racism. Um, I think, I think in the, in the broadest way, that was the biggest thing that was missing. And the reality is that you know, ending sexual and gender-based violence specifically can't happen without challenging anti-Blackness or acknowledging Black and Indigenous genocide in, in this country or addressing other forms of racism. And so, you know, we thought about the fact that sexual violence has always been used as a colonial weapon. And we see that out in, even in our sexual and romantic experiences today, right? Through hypersexualization, through fetishization, through adultification, like all of us as people of color and Indigenous people, we were all coming forward and saying, this is what my story looked like. Um, and my experiences of non-consensual situations almost always had to do with my race. That was, that was often involved, right? The kind of ways that I've been socialized as a, as a Black woman, but also the ways that I'm viewed as a Black woman in society has contributed to, you know, the spaces where consent for me is compromised. And that was really important for me, especially then to think about and to understand, you know, being at that age, I was in my early 20s when I was in university and when I was part of this grassroots organization, Decolonize and Deconstruct. And I was in a time where I was processing a lot. You know, I grew up in a predominantly white city. And I just remember when I got to university and I started having more conversations with other students, particularly the students in this group, I was able to piece together like, oh, this is what happened. Like, oh, this is where this came from. This was an example of this. And it really kind of opened my eyes. And even though beforehand I was interested in being a sexual health educator, I really took the turn and the focus on including a really inclusive and and anti-racist framework in my work as a sexual health educator in that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was really important to, to me and to the work that I do. Can you share some of those you, you named that as you were going through the process, you thought, yes, that's what this is. That's what happened there. Can you share some of those examples? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it was really understanding and learning what sexual racism was. And when I learned that, that really was, I would say more so my aha moment, um, which is imbe- was embedded with that kind of time period that I mentioned of starting to have more conversations with peers, you know, even classes that I was in. And just personal experience and, and reflect self-reflection of noticing what things were um, and finally having the ability to put a name to it. And so sexual racism was was the name that I found out matched a lot of my experiences. And I, I can remember a specific example and I mention it all the time. I've written about it. I've talked in various spaces about it. But the first person I was intimate with as a teenager was someone that I had really strong romantic interest in. 
And I came to find out that I was really just a a racial experience or conquest for him. Mm. So he described me to his friends as gaining his black belt. That's what he described sleeping with me as. Mm. And so while my intentions were always clear that, you know, I had feelings for him and I was interested in him um, romantically, his intentions of sleeping with me were not clear. And so if I had known those were his intentions, it likely would have impacted my decision to be intimate with him. Right. Mm -hmm. So consent in a situation like this is compromised again because I wasn't aware of what I of what I was to him. Right. Mm -hmm. Which was a racial conquest. And so I think that's one of the, the big examples that I constantly think of, you know, those intentions. I think a lot of times when I thought of consent back then, I just figured, you know, he said yes, I said yes, so we're good to go. But I didn't think about the the layers of it. I didn't think mm-hmm. about the, the ways that um, folks can be manipulated. I didn't think about things like fetishization and how that impacts consent. Um, I didn't think about what you leave out of a conversation is, mm. is can be non-consensual as well. Mm. And so that was a big, a big moment for me to really start processing that, especially because I started having sex very young. And so by the time I was in university, I was really in a place where I was like, wait, as I heard people talk about these kinds of terms, I was like, hold up, that sounds a little too familiar. (laughs) And I realized, Mm -hmm. I realized why it did. And it was because of experiences like that, that I had, I had Mm -hmm. gone through. Yeah. Yeah. Can you speak to a little bit more about what is objectification? What is fetishization, adultification? Those those terms that are used that either get in the way of consent or, or that sort of takes the, the intention and the information out. So we, we does affect our consent process. Can you speak to those for clarity? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So fetishization is essentially, it's an example of sexual racism. And it is when you pretty much base your interest or lack of interest, or specifically in this case, interest towards somebody, a racialized person based on racial stereotypes. So you might've heard things like, you know, I only like black guys because they all have big penises, or I only like black girls because they're all freaky in bed, or I like Asian women because they're docile. Mm -hmm. So these kinds of things would be examples of fetishization of Mm -hmm. choosing to be romantically or sexually involved with somebody specifically based on racial stereotypes of them. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to adultification, adultification is another really important one. Um, It was important for me to learn and be able to connect to my experiences. And adultification is essentially um, often a term used specifically for Black youth. Um, And it's a term that acknowledges that Black youth are often considered more mature um, and in less need of protection than um, other youth, um, specifically Mm -hmm. than white youth. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that um, white kids are innocent, that they get to be kids, that they get to be protected, whereas Black kids are often seen as getting more suspensions in school, are mm-hmm. seen as having more behavioral issues, are seen as be acting out, are seen mm-hmm. as violent, right? Even though they're also just kids. And so this idea seeps into sex as well and, and consent and, and romantic relationships. When you think of, for example, growing up, you know, I was, again, one of few Black families in my neighborhood. I developed faster than a lot of my peers. And I remember being 15 and having grown men make comments towards me, right? Mm. And a lot of that being racially motivated comments as well that were kind of focused on, again, fetishization. And so adultification is really, you know, an example of that. And then I think there was another one you mentioned as well. Objectification. Objectification. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, objectification, again, is objectifying someone based on and, and focusing on someone based on um, what they are, not who they are. So again, for me, that ties a lot with with sexual racism. But again, choosing or finding interest in some interest in someone because um, how you objectify their body, or um, again, maybe it might be their race, or maybe it be something specific about them physically, um, rather than looking at who they are as a person. I imagine it as like dehumidif- dehumanifying someone taking the humanity yeah. out of them and then kind of just like looking at the shell as the thing as a as a thing of desire as an object of desire yeah exactly um, yeah mm. i appreciate that clarity because some of what we hear is confusion around what's the distinction between well that's just my type 
That's mm. the folk I'm attracted to. I'm just, that's my, yes. versus I'm objectifying and I'm fetishizing. And I, I see the mm. difference as there is, you can be attractive to particular types of bodies, but to anticipate experiences based on the stereotypes mm-hmm. of what people believe those bodies will do. That's a distinction that I hear you saying. That's a great, yeah, that's a great way to define it. That anticipation of, of expectations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that you brought up that difference between kind of having a type and, and mm-hmm. fetishizing someone, because I always kind of say like a type could be, you know, I like boys in bands or mm-hmm. I like someone who's, who's into sports or I like women who don't wear a lot of makeup or women who do wear a lot of makeup. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, we still have to be con- consider where our types come from. They don't come out of nowhere. They're based on our environment. Mm-hmm. Um, they're based on the media we consume, but we have to, have to understand and assess the kind of, harm factor in our, Mm -hmm. in our types. Right. And so, you know, with the difference, I guess the main difference is in regards to having a type to, to fetishization is racism, but not only racism, but also often consent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, going back to that story of the first person I was intimate with, that was a situation where due to fetishization, consent was compromised. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of times when we talk about fetishization versus having a type, the the main difference there is, is consent. Um, but also specifically with fetishization, the main difference is, is racism as well, right? When you think of a type, it usually wouldn't be linked to a specific race of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering if we can take a step back and you can help connect the dots around how did we get here? You know, what about our history has lent itself to embed this insidious way of thinking and viewing people Mm. And ways that we don't even realize in, in, the, in the case that you're saying that you were you were prepared in all of the ways to participate in safe and consensual sexual intimacy. And yet this this piece of this really important piece of of consent did not show up for you. And so I'm, I'm yeah, I'm just wondering, how did we get here? Yeah, I think especially with fetish, like specifically talking about fetishization. I think one of the harshest realities, especially as someone who's experienced sexual racism, is that to many people you're just replaceable, right? Mm. So when people say things like, I only date X type of person, Mm. or I only date, you know, this kind of person, and it has to do with the race, it Mm. takes away, specifically for Black folks, it takes away that ability to be multifaceted, to be an individual, to be a unique person with your own identities. And it also adds pressure to perform sexually. And so Mm. when I was able to kind of tie these knots together and understand this as I got older, it allowed me to look at my kind of personal experiences and experiences of my peers and people who disclose their experiences with me. Um, How many times can I say experience in one sentence? Mm -hmm. Um, But it also allowed me to look at the historical context of it and where that comes from, because Mm -hmm. I, I thought to myself, it can't obviously come from nowhere if me and so many other folks are going through this. And so I think a, a big one, that I often talk about in my workshops is stereotypes of black women that stem from colonialism. So stereotypes such as Jezebel, Mammy, Sapphire. So for folks who might not be aware of these or never heard these kind of tropes before, mm-hmm. these are stereotypes and tropes of black women that were kind of pinned through chattel slavery, through colonialism. Mm-hmm. Jezebel is kind of seen as, you know, this black woman with an insatiable appetite for sex. Um, and there's often been the term, in regards to the Jezebel, that she is, quote unquote, unrapeable. So mm. there's the one who's seen as over hypersexual. When we have the mammy who is considered, you know, picture Octavia Spencer in in the, the help, right? Mm-hmm. This kind of idea of, or Aunt Jemima, right? Mm-hmm. Think of Black women who are kind of seen as the, quote unquote, happy slave, the one who's often taking care of, of you know, the master's children, the one who is kind of docile and quiet and just complacent. And then Sapphire, who is considered the angry Black woman. So of course, Mm -hmm. we've all heard this trope many times. And what's so interesting to me about these three tropes is that we see them show up so much in present day, all in the context of compromising Black women's ability to consent. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, while all three are very different, one is someone who is hypersexual, one is seen as docile, one is seen as angry, they all have been used to justify violence against Black women. So mm-hmm. either, oh, she's she's very hypersexual, you know, she can't say no, she likes everything. Or the mammy where it's like, well, you know, she's just submissive and she's happy to take anything. 
And then there's also the the sapphire where it's, you know, the angry black woman. And again, it's this idea of having to get her in line to control her, mm-hmm. right? Um, she, she needs to be tamed. So all three of these, while very different, have all been used to justify violence against black women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really important in kind of understanding where sexual racism kind of comes from and, and a lot of the origins of it. And then I also think a lot about the high rates of sexual violence among black boys and men, often through fetishization, or on the other hand, we see often historically, and even in present day, false accusations of sexual violence to black boys and men, which again, is something that we've seen, again, repeatedly play out in history, with just one example being Emmett Till. So these stereotypes of black men as monsters, as predators who want to hurt innocent white women is still a trope we see to this day, right? And so all of these things and so many more contribute to how we experience sexual racism today, how race impacts um, our abilities to consent. Um, And also, yeah, really kind of going back to your question of where does this come from? And I would say that these two are are huge um, Mm -hmm. foundations of, of where this kind of rhetoric comes from mm-hmm. there's there's so much there that i do appreciate you breaking that stuff down and i think one of the things that that i can also imagine that contributes deeply is the history of slavery right that that the black bodies were once owned right mm-hmm. and even though they're not today technically that idea as i think transcended the slavery period but is in the subconscious of of the society today. So I think I can also imagine that heavily affecting the consent process for, for uh, black and brown folks. Absolutely. I can't imagine any decent person walking around saying, yeah, that's, you know, I feel like I own the black body, but I think it's in the subconscious of especially the American people. And, right. and then I think because it's, in, it's so insidiously in the subconscious, the asking for consent for something that y- some part of your, your, your subconscious setting you own on some level can also, I can, I, I can see how it gets in the way of like proper, decent consent dialogues. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, going like those, those kind of tropes of black women go directly linked back to slavery. Right. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but when you think of sexual racism in present day and you hear white people say things like, you know, I've never, I've never tried this before, or I'm going to gain my black belt, mm-hmm. right? That kind of goes back to this idea of black bodies being exotic, right? And black sure. being, bodies being as up for public display and, mm-hmm. and anybody can do what they want with them. And so, like you said, that's very much something that while we might not see chattel slavery exist in, in you know, North America anymore, which is questionable, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. you know, but, but we still see it within, I mean, our, our systems, right? Our, 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 our systems are rooted in this, our systems are rooted in um, indigenous genocide and, and chattel slavery. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. of course, this shows up every day within our policies, within our healthcare systems, within our criminal justice system. Like it's mm-hmm. it's ingrained everywhere. It's it's inescapable. And so, of course, we see people in court justifying sexual violence against Black women and not believing our stories. Of course, we see Black men being fetishized on dating apps. Of course, you know, like, of course we see it in Mm. these places because it still very much is, like you said, in that subconscious of your body doesn't fully belong to you. Mm. And Mm -hmm. that's very much something that that still exists. Yeah. Yeah. You wrote an article called uh, Can't Put a Condom on Racism. Adam Sandler, Anti-Blackness and Safer Sex. And in there, you talk about how microaggressions that existed way before you were sexually active began Mm -hmm. to set the scene for and build an insidious shared understanding between objectifier and and the person who is objectified that their body can be treated differently. You, You give reference to comments made to your body or or touching your hair or things that started to plant the seed to say, I get to do things to you without your permission, which then once you get to the point of being in in sexual relationships, that is now a seed that has been planted on all sides Mm -hmm. and it becomes much more challenging. And and so, you know, I want to, one line that you wrote in your article was that uh, surface level consent campaigns that I was exposed to didn't consider how the lack of regard for black folks' bodies takes the autonomy out of the choices around consent. And you name that you experienced that from a place of feeling undesirable and inadequate. 
Yeah. And that was the way that you, it was your first clue to what was happening before you had the language around it. Right. And so wanted to, to ask you to explore that a little bit around now looking back, you can see all of those points and say, ah, when they asked to touch my hair, when they made that comment in front of other people, like I see that now, I didn't see it then, but it sounds like your body knew. That, that inadequacy, that undesirable feeling, your body knew before your mind caught up. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, about the signs that potentially your body was sharing that you ignored at the time. I absolutely, as you mentioned, came to a point at a young age where I realized that my body wasn't completely my own. And I think even in when I think of elementary school and I think of, again, people touching hair, I remember people making certain comments. And I think especially as I kind of hit puberty and started to develop, that was when I really noticed, especially comments, unwarranted, (laughs) unprovoked comments about my body, whether it be you gained weight, you lost weight, your boobs are bigger, you don't have a big butt, this, that. And so these just kind of unnecessary comments towards my body, where a lot of my white peers were still just seen as little girls. I think that was really a moment where I noticed, or at least my body noticed, that difference. And I think with sexual racism, I think the important thing to acknowledge is that sexual racism is, you know, showing sexual romantic interest or lack of in a person based on racial stereotypes. And so I know we've talked a lot about kind of what happens when fetishization happens and and people focus on being desired based on their, their race. But there's also the other side, which I've also experienced of not being shown interest based on race. Mm. And both hurt, (laughs) right? Both Mm -hmm. are really tough, especially as a kid. Um, And so I remember being young and a lot of my friends dating and, and having people to bring to the dance and people that they're interested in. And there was never that kind of interest in me. And there was racial comments. There was comments about my body. All these things came up, but nothing ever had to do with me as a person. And so I think that was really solidified when I did have sex for the first time and it was seen as gaining their black belt. Where And it was also somebody, keep in mind, who I had a crush on since I was like in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. So for me, spending all that time, mm-hmm. seeing, right? Spending all that time seeing them date other girls and be interested in other people and noticing that not only am I in this black, fat body, which looks mm-hmm. very different from the people I'm growing up with, but you're not interested in who I am, which is why I could have never been your girlfriend. Mm. But the second that you had an opportunity, I, you were ready to to kind of be intimate with me because you were interested in checking that off of your bucket list. Mm-hmm. And so it again goes back to object- objectification of people going after what you are rather than who you are. And I think that's one of the harshest things of sexual racism is that you're interchangeable. If somebody says, I only date black guys, it could be Denzel Washington or 50 Cent. They don't care. They're just mm-hmm. like, I know that this, 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 this the of what I expect mm-hmm. to be done from a black man. And there's that p- pressure to perform. So for me, especially as a black girl, I remember, and this is a story I haven't talked about as often, but that same person who I was first intimate with, I remember seeing his phone. And when I saw my name come, my, who I, like, my name come up on his phone, I saw that he saved me under ghetto booty. Yeah. yeah. And so wow. being young, experiencing that, I mean, I, I was at his house before his mom said, get this jungle bunny out of my house. So yeah, there was absolutely so many obvious signs of racism, but at the same time, there was that constant dissonance between my body saying, this doesn't feel good, but my brain saying, you know, somebody wants you. And the person that you wanted to want you for so long wants you. And you are a black girl with a bowl cut and (laughs) big glasses and braces. And nobody else thinks you're cute around here. And nobody else likes black girls around here. So you're going to take what you can get. Right. And so I think, I think as much as I am passionate about talking about the one side of sexual racism, where you're desired only for your race, I've also had equal experience of not being desired because of my race or being desired again for the wrong reasons, but who I am was never desired, but just what I could offer physically, which again goes back to pressure to perform because not all black girls look like Megan Thee Stallion (laughs) and not all black girls can, you know, not all black girls do things the same way and sexually everyone's different. Right. Um, 
I mean, I think yeah. just black people aren't a monolith, right? This is the thing that exactly yeah, yeah we talk about in every subject. Like, there is no one. There's like there are a people, right? Yeah. There's, there yeah. is no monolith of this is what a black girl is or this is what a black boy is. I, right. I think this is a topic that comes up over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. I lived briefly in Africa uh, for about a year, and one of the things I did notice is the variety of even just colors, shapes, sizes. It is a yeah. whole continent of people, and you know, it is a colorful, broad spectrum of people. And there's no way of just you know, even in their home continent, there is no monolith. Like there is no, no. this is the black people. So um, yeah, I mean, I think I think we end up. I think, in, especially in North America, it just gets reduced down to that that. Like yeah. this is what black girls, this is what black women, this is what black boys, black men, um, and I think that's what you know one of the root problems, right? Absolutely. And when you don't fit into that, what does that look like, right? When yes. you don't fit into one of the, when you don't fit into certain racial stereotypes, how does sexual racism impact you mm-hmm. still, right? What do For people sure. expect from you? Again, the pressure to perform. Mm-hmm. Black men constantly being told that they need to have an insatiable appetite for sex, that they need to mm-hmm. have big dicks, right? Like, mm-hmm. what happens when? your awkward, shy black boy, you know, mm-hmm. with a average size penis. <laughs> right? okay. And you mm-hmm. and you maybe are asexual. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. What, yeah, if, sure. what what happens then? Right? Mm-hmm. What do people think of you then? And and what do your relationships look like? And how does desire towards you or lack of desire towards you? How does mm-hmm. how does what does that look like? Yeah. Sure. One of the things that continues to sit with me as soon as you said it is that feeling of I, I have to I can gotta take what I can get. Mm. Oh, and that like that's that 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 resonates, and it and triggers I, the fifteen-year-old self. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Looking back, the things that I allowed to happen to me in my body because that was the narrative of like. I got to take what I can get. They're showing some interest, so yeah. some interest with with malintent is better than no interest at all. Yeah. And I'm thinking about what you shared around how to change the narratives and the conversations within sexual education and consent. And I imagine that part of that includes focusing on sexual self-esteem and body self-esteem and having people really honor who they are and not take less than they deserve. And so yeah. I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about that around how can we have radically inclusive conversations and education about consent. As you mentioned, a huge one is body confidence, um, self-esteem. And that's one thing I always really want to hone in on is that sexual health is so much more than sex. I always tell people sex itself is actually quite a small piece of the, of the work that Mm. I do. I always tell people like, I'm not a sex therapist. I'm not a sexologist. Like, that's not my job. So sex itself is one small aspect of what I talk about. What I talk about is equipping people with tools to make informed decisions about their bodies. What I talk about is sexual racism. What I talk about is, you know, consent. And so I think a way that we can start having radical conversations and, and education around consent is to be honest, you know, and to allow ourselves to be uncomfortable. I think there's this pressure when we talk about sexual health, especially consent, for it to be like, really sexy all the time. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that it's not always, you know, especially when we consider the fact that consent is more than just sexual acts. It can be in all facets of our life. And so, you know, it's not consent isn't sexy when you're telling your boss to not touch your lower back. Consent isn't sexy when you're telling your white peer to not touch your hair without asking. Like there's so many areas where these conversations aren't always cute or fun or pretty or sexy or comfortable to have. And that's okay. You know, we can, they can still be accessible. They can still be interesting. There's so many, you know, avenues to, to get knowledge these days as someone who creates sexual health content on social media, never thought that would be a part of my job. <laughs> um, but you know, you go on places like TikTok and the, the youth are eating it up, you know, they, they, they are really engaged. And so there's so many areas to, have these conversations in an honest way and to really just start by again, focusing on honesty and and focusing on an approach of harm reduction rather than abstinence. I think that's Mm -hmm. the key. You know, I went to a Catholic high school and so I remember sign having a nun have me sign this, like in an assembly, it was a pretty much like this commitment to be abstinent until marriage. 
And Mm -hmm. I remember signing it and I had already had sex. (laughs) And, and, um, and I just remember thinking when I look back and they had like this, this necklace to wear and stuff. And I just remember looking back on it and being like, what a waste of time and resources, you know, what a waste of time and resources for you to all be here telling us this when there are people who are obviously already having sex and people and students who are experiencing sexual violence, students who are already experiencing teen pregnancy. Like there's already all of the, you know, that there's things happening. Mm -hmm. And so why are you not equipping us with the tools to be able to take the best care as, as possible of our bodies? Like why are you not having those conversations? But I will say a really beautiful full circle moment is when I started doing work in high schools a couple of years ago. And I would, I would spend the lunch hour in the guidance counselor office and give out pamphlets and condoms and things like that. And I was like, this is so cool because mm-hmm. our guidance counselor office was the chaplain and he was cool, but like it, there was none of this kind of stuff going on. And to now see that there's kids having open conversations about sex, asking me, I have queer kids asking me like, what does, sex with a woman for me as a woman look like, you know, or mm-hmm. what, what is a good age to start having sex? Or like, they're asking really great questions and knowing that they're comfortable enough to do that is, is really exciting to see. Even just in the 10 year, 15 year difference since I've been in high school, it's mm-hmm. changed so much, which is amazing. Yeah. I, I think that that makes a lot of sense, right? Having honesty is the the, the core value for having these conversations. Um, and, and maybe I would add to that also um, storytelling, people sharing their stories. Yeah. And I think that provides context and, and camaraderie and seeing how these things actually work out in real life, right? Like what, what does it feel like to, to stop what you're doing to, to sort of either change mm. where you are consensually or to have those yeah. difficult conversations and also um, stories of joy and success, right? Mm-hmm. Saying like, I stopped and, you know, sort of consent and it was good or, you know, that I was given the space to talk about my desires and I was heard. Mm-hmm. And I think those are really important as well to have as a part of the consent conversation rather than to say, yeah. here's a formula, here's what you do. And if you don't do that right, you're probably going to get it wrong. Right. right. So I think honesty and storytelling and sharing is really, I think, what's going to advance the conversation around consent. And and th- thank you for, for doing an amazing job of, of doing that and advancing yeah. the conversation on consent. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. And I, I love that you brought up, you know, talking about the joyful experiences, too, because mm-hmm. that's a big part of, you know, what I try to incorporate in my work is focusing sexual health also on pleasure. Right. And focusing mm-hmm. consent on pleasure. And I think for a lot of us, we either didn't receive consent education in our sex Mm -hmm. ed curriculum, Mm -hmm. or we were given a very, again, surface level approach to consent Mm -hmm. that focused on, you know, no means no, rather than anything but an uninfluenced yes is a no. Mm -hmm. And the issue here is really that, you know, that approach of to consent really leaves out pleasure. It leaves out excitement, enthusiasm, desire, which makes it really awkward sometimes and uncomfortable for people to have real conversations about consent. Because again, it seems like this kind of formula. I used to have people say like, okay, do I have to stop and wait for the exact word? Yes. And then do this and then do that. And I'm like, mm-hmm. context also matters, mm-hmm. right? Like if you've been like my partner and I have been together for over three years, it doesn't always look like a explicit yes or exp- the word no. It could look like other things. It could look like me coming in my, you know, pink pajama nightgown <laughs> after 10 o'clock. <laughs> then you know it's probably not going to happen, right? <laughs> or or if, you know, if I say, like, I'm not really feeling it, or if I, mm-hmm. th- there are certain things that we've learned about each other's bodies and taken the in- intentional time to learn about each other's mm-hmm. bodies and about each other's personalities and just each other in communication, mm-hmm. that it also informs our consent in the bedroom and how we respond to each other. Even if one of us says yes and the other one is, and or might not be seeming as into it, we'll do, the other one will know to stop. Well, they'll know maybe this isn't the night. Right. And so context also matters. And it doesn't have to be this awkward thing of asking for consent. Like, I think sometimes people think you have to stop halfway through and like give them a paper to like check Mm -hmm. yes or no. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. no, you can, you know, or even when I say consent is ongoing, people are like, so I have to keep asking the whole time. And I'm like, checking in can be cool, right? Mm -hmm. Ask, does this feel good? How is this? Make Mm -hmm. it as sexy or as awkward as you want. But like there are so many ways to have these conversations that doesn't need to follow an exact formula. Context matters. Mm-hmm. You know, the relationship you're in matters, the people that you're with, the ways that you know each other, like all of these things can 
influence how you understand and and go about giving and receiving consent in your relationship. Mm -hmm. Also, sometimes you just don't know, especially if it's something that you haven't done before. So it's it's not an implicit yes, but it's not a no either because you don't know what you're saying yes or no to. So there needs to be some right. room left for experimentation and trial and, yeah. and that sort of dipping your toe in and seeing what it feels like, maybe dipping yeah. like your foot in and, you know, like right. taking your time. So any kind of rigid formula is, is never going to work. Yeah. Number one, because you're dealing with humans, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the complex creatures that we are. And mm-hmm. number two, we don't always, you know, we don't have experience of everything and we might yeah. not necessarily be ready to consent to something because we just don't understand it mm-hmm. right. um, and I think leaving room for that is also really important yeah which is also why safe words are so can be so important yeah. and so useful right and I often yeah. I've often been you know encouraging folks with that a lot lately especially because again there is that room where sometimes you're like yo I'm interested I'm down to do everything with you but I don't know what to, how to do everything, you know? And so it's not mm. that I'm uncomfortable. I feel very safe in this space. I feel very comfortable with this person. Mm-hmm. But I've never tried this before. So mm-hmm. we can try it, but I need you to start slow. Mm-hmm. I need you to use this and this. This place is off limits. Mm-hmm. And the safe word is this. So if I say this, we have to stop right mm-hmm. away. No questions asked. Mm-hmm. So I think the safe word is also really useful And people think that safe words are only for like BDSM and really intense, you know, kinds of sexual experiences Mm -hmm. that have to do with maybe dominance and submission or, you know, more aggression in sex, in sex. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case. Like it can be used for any kind of sex you're having, any kind of Mm -hmm. sexual experiences you're having. It's always comfortable sometimes to have safe words, whether it be with someone, you know, or someone that might be a one night stand, like it works for every situation. And so, Yeah. yeah, I think, I think safe words are really awesome. Yeah. I love the language you use of checking into checking in with the other person. How does this feel? Checking with yourself. How does this feel for me before I answer, right? Like actually, (laughs) how does this feel for me? Yeah. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Just being genuinely curious about it. Right. I think we we talk about checking in as this thing that you, it's this burden that you're doing, that you have to do. You have to remember, you have to like tie a a piece of red (laughs) string around your finger. (laughs) So you step to check in with the, with your, you know, with your play partner. In an ideal world, you're having sex with somebody that you're curious about and you're curious about what's actually happening and you're genuinely curious mm-hmm. and interested right. in their about experience. About what feels good to them. Right. right. And, right. and in your own experience, I think th- that's something else that's maybe worth mentioning. That This mm. idea of like, you must check in. It's it's not supposed to be a burden. Like, you yeah. you, you, you do want to check in. You want, you, like, I, I imagine that you can cultivate curiosity, genuine curiosity for the experience and the other person. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. once you do that, I think the checking in will come naturally. You don't have to tie that red string around your finger to remember to ask your partner if it feels good. If you cultivate, mm-hmm. if you cultivate, if you really care the, about whether it feels right. good. <laughs> if you just cultivate curiosity around what you're doing, it's going to come up because you're going to be like, you're doing something. Right. You're like, is this good? Like, how is this working like, <laughs> over you? You know, rather than, oh, okay, right, let me just stop and ask if it's good. Right. You know? you like and, then you make, and then you make it uncomfortable for everybody because then you seem annoyed. And then, and I think yeah. also another huge point is that sexual health education, inclusive sexual health education and inclusive consent education, it creates more emotionally intelligent and empathetic humans, mm. right? When you're uni- learning from a young age, even in kindergarten about consent, mm-hmm. about having the autonomy to tell people no, about mm-hmm. being able to understand mm-hmm. that nobody's body belongs to you. Like having that ingrained from a young age creates yeah. more emotionally intelligent sexual partners. Yes. And so whether it be, you know, just on a, in romantic non-sexual experiences or in, you know, sex itself, you'll be able to have the skills and the emotional bandwidth mm-hmm. to say, Oh, I can tell that this person does not look comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I, I've, I've heard so many stories of, of, of friends and myself included of being intimate with somebody and just being so uncomfortable and it's written on my face mm-hmm. and then just still going ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then even afterwards being like, why were you being like, you wouldn't seem into it. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't yeah. into it. <laughs> right. Like, right. why didn't you have the capacity to understand that? Yeah. You know, it's not always as easy to say no, because our bodies, again, mm-hmm. we're, we're odd creatures, like you said, mm-hmm. and sometimes we freeze, especially mm-hmm. if you've experienced sexual trauma, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. sometimes you have to also understand how to have the, the skills and the tools to not only understand yourself, 
but look for signs and and just use some regular compassion to understand body language and yeah. you know other things like that, right? And not to take it personally. And not to take it personally. Yeah, exactly. not to take it personally. Like if someone's uncomfortable, no one's saying no, someone's not up for it. It's not personal. I think once you get the, cons- like ex- to your point exactly, once you get the stuff ingrained at a younger age, I think you also realize it's a process. It's a personal yeah. process. It's like my consent process is mine and, and the other person is theirs. And, and there's a separation there. There's a healthy boundary there. So if they're mm-hmm. saying no, not right now, yeah. uncomfortable i think just not to take it personally is also the, yeah. the big piece mm-hmm. i think once we introduce to it at an, at an older age it feels there's more ego in the in the way right mm-hmm. consent education mm-hmm. too late there's like a, a lot more ego in the way a lot mm-hmm. more um they're like what do you mean i have to ask mm-hmm. right exactly exactly <laughs> i think if it's ingrained at a younger age you don't question it as much you just realize it's a human process and you you make yeah. room mm-hmm. for it for yourself and the other person mm-hmm. yeah absolutely mm-hmm. And frankly, attunement and being able to ask and stop actually makes you a better lover in the perception mm-hmm. of the yeah. person that you're with than the person Absolutely. who keeps going otherwise. So, yeah. so stopping when someone doesn't look comfortable actually makes you a much better lover. Absolutely. <laughs> Keep going. Exactly. <laughs> before we ask you a few questions to get to know you a little bit better before we wrap, want to want to just give space if there's anything else that you want to share or note that we haven't gotten to in our conversation with you. I don't think so. I think, I think I, I've really been able to kind of touch on some of the most important points for me, which is coming to sexual health education from an, from an approach of harm reduction and pleasure, understanding sexual racism and some of the history of that, and really encouraging folks to learn as much as possible so that they can make informed decisions about their bodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Perfect. Fantastic. We have four questions for you just to get to know you again a little bit before we wrap. Um, the first one is, and now I feel like I might know the answer, but I'm curious anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but what is one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self about love, sex, or relationships? To look for validation internally, not externally. Mm. And to seek as much information as you can from reliable and safe people and resources mm. in order to make informed decisions about your body. Mm-hmm. As you can see, my keyword is always informed decisions. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah. Uh, yeah. What is one romantic or sexual adventure on your bucket list? I really want to go to a sex party. Like I, I know myself enough to know that I might not necessarily participate, but just out of curiosity, I would really love to, to check one out. Yeah. Well, I, I wrote a book on sex parties. I was going to say, I'll say. I mean, <laughs> <your book. laughs> yeah. uh, I'll, I'll send it to you. I'll send you a PDF. Oh, sweet. Um, awesome. Yeah, if, you, if you're ever going to go to one, it's, it's a short, it's a booklet, really. I mean, it's, yes. a, it's a mini book, uh, yeah, but it's it is. Des- it, it's designed, it's written to help a person. I wrote it really as a, as a reflection of my first party, um, which was actually a really good experience for me. But the things that I wish I'd known. Because somebody just brought me to a party and said, enjoy. And I was like, whoa, what's going on? <laughs> so this book is really about all the things that I wish I was told before my first party. Um, mm. It's called Play Party Etiquette. And I will, and I will share it with you. I yes. love that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, how do you challenge the status quo? I would say by encouraging people to question everything, especially when they're told not to. <laughs> mm. yeah. yes. 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 And what are you curious about lately? I've been talking about this so much lately with my friends. Um, I was recently in the East Coast uh, of Canada doing some workshops for Sexual Assault Awareness Week um, a couple weeks ago or last week. And I was talking about it with participants there. And I've been so interested lately in the power of male validation and why it impacts women and femmes so deeply, even those of us who are queer. (laughs) Yeah. Even those of us who don't date men (laughs) or, you know, Yes. are in relationships with women, like it, it, in, it impacts us so deeply. And so I'm curious in regards to my own experience, yeah. if I ever actually truly enjoyed sex with men or if I enjoyed the validation from being wanted by a man. Mm. Yeah. And I think you could see how that goes back to my first interaction story. <laughs> sure. I have a theory. Yeah. I imagine it's to do with the nuclear family setup and the fact that the way that we've set up family core families though it's not what it is, but it's how to set them up is that as soon as a woman gets pregnant, the dad actually ends up being, being even more out of the picture, right? Because they have to work hard, they go to work. So I think the male figure, even in a nuclear family, is absent once a mm. child comes to the world. 
because mm. there's the, the child has more needs, right? So, and because the men are always put in in the bread earner, you know, the breadwinner category, they become more and more absent. The more children there are, I think they become more and more absent. Even we're looking at the traditional 1950s, like nuclear um, household, never mind the divorces of modern life. But even in that that nuclear setup, I think um, men have always been taken out of the house. And that absence is felt regardless of your gender orientation would be my Mm -hmm. my, my hypothesis. And then we'd have to do research. (laughs) (laughs) but no you're you're completely right you're completely right there i am i am with two women in you know open relationship and yet there are times right i like walk down the street like why do i care whether this person is looking at me or not like what Mm. is the yes so now i am now curious i know (laughs) you have influenced my curiosity and Mm -hmm. i too am curious i would love to explore it has been a real pleasure having a conversation with you lydia thank you so much Thank you. For thank you, and thank you for the work that you do. It is yeah. it is precious. It's, uh, you too. So thank Continue you. Continue to keep people curious. I love it. And thank you for having me. <laughs> thank, thank you. If you want to learn more about Lydia Collins, you can find her on TikTok and Instagram at la collins underscore. You can find her article "Love Isn't a Zero Sum Game" in the New York Times, and her poetry and essays, including "I Can't Put a Condom on Racism," Adam Sandler anti-blackness and safer sex on her website, lydiacollins.ca. You can also check out the collaborative video project that Lydia produced called Joy is Our Birthright by visiting unilearnal.com and searching for Joy is Our Birthright. If you enjoyed this episode, have questions or strategies that you want to share, and you want to reach out to other Foxy listeners to hear what they have to say, head to our Facebook group at We Are Curious Foxes. We've been updating our website to make it easier for you to find the blog posts and resources and reading lists and episodes that you are curious about. You can find all of that and more at wearecuriousfoxes.com. To support the show and continue to indulge your curiosity, join us on Patreon at We Are Curious Foxes, where you can find mini episodes, podcast extras that didn't make it to the show, and over 50 videos from educator-led workshops. If you find this episode interesting, funny, or helpful, Please share our podcast with a friend, quickly rate the show, leave a comment, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or follow us on Spotify or Stitcher. This will take you a few seconds of your time, but will have a big impact for us. And let us know that you're listening. Share a comment, a story, or question by emailing us or sending us a voice memo to listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com, or you can record a question for the show by calling 646-450-9079. This episode is produced by Effie Blue and Jacqueline Mesla, with help from Yamur Arkishi. Our editor is Nina Pollock, who we give blanket consent for creative expression on this show. Our intro music is composed by Dev Saha. We are so grateful for their work, and we're grateful to you for listening. As always, stay curious, friends. If you want to... Nope, see, we just... We even... I was like, this, we're going to get it right this time. Nope, Slow not even. Down. Okay. <clears throat> if you want to re- <laughs> why can't I say words I'm sorry it's contagious I'm sorry <sighs> okay okay I'm gonna do this what a single take I know shocking <laughs> what happened Curious Fox podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic we solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious.